Welcome to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires limitless possibilities. This podcast is being brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Limitless was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community in order to show the world that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the executive director and founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marcelet. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marcelet, and I thank you so much for joining us again this week. We have a really exciting topic today and a guest. But before I get to that, I want to welcome my co-host back to the podcast, Keisha. Welcome back. Ooh, thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here today. And uh, so we are today we're talking to Tyson Reddy, who is the founder of Braille Mountain Initiative, and he's going to explain what that is in a moment. Uh, But welcome, Tyson. Awesome. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, thanks for being here. So Tyson, before we get into a lot of details about Braille Mountain Initiative, can you just explain your level of vision for our listeners? Yeah. I have Lieber's hereditary optic neuropathy, um, and I've got the typical uh, central vision loss. So yeah, no central vision. Um, I have a bit of peripheral vision left, a little bit more in my left eye. Uh, Basically enough peripheral vision that I can walk around without bumping into things, um, but not enough that I could, um, you know, say, read or recognize faces or do any of those um, high visual acuity tasks. I use a uh, screen reader. Do you use a white cane? I don't No, I haven't tried that yet. Okay. So tell us what is Braille Mountain Initiative? So Braille Mountain Initiative is a nonprofit organization with the focus of getting blind athletes involved in backcountry mountain sports. So maybe you can explain what that what's backcountry sports? <laughs> yeah. What is that yeah. exactly? <laughs> so um, it's it's a fairly it's a fairly broad term um, for us. Where we're starting is with backcountry skiing. Um, so uh, basically, what backcountry skiing is it's a form of downhill skiing, but instead of using you know the chairlift that um, you'd have at any resort to access the terrain, um, we access the terrain using other means. Um, So generally um, using snowmobiles or trucks or helicopters to, um, yeah, to to access a sort of general backcountry zone. And then from there, we travel up the mountain uh, using um, a special kind of binding that allows your foot to pivot at the toe when traveling Mm -hmm. uphill, uh, similar to a cross-country ski, um, but then you're able to lock the heel down when you get to the top and you're ready to ski. Um, So the the downhill skiing sensation is that of downhill skiing. And then we put this material on the bottom of our skis called climbing skins that allows the ski to slide uphill, but not downhill. And essentially you're able to walk up the mountain using a technique that's somewhat similar to cross-country skiing. And then when you get to the top, you tear that material off, lock the heel in, and you can ski downhill. And so this gives you the ability to access um, essentially any terrain that snow will stick to, you can now ski. You're not limited to what, um, a chairlift would provide you access to. Oh, wow. 
that's cool. Kind of like the best of all worlds. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an incredible workout. Um, and it's, uh, it's an adventure sport. Um, you know, like I, as I mentioned, you can, you can ski anything that the snow will stick to. So, you know, you're, um, you know, for a sighted person, you could be driving down the highway and look up at, you know, a, a snowy peak somewhere off the highway and, you know, decide that's something you want to ski and then, and then go after it. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it really opens up the doors to, uh, to any possibility, really anything you want to ski, you can, you can go do it. Keisha, uh, I know you've done downhill skiing. Have you done cross country or this crazy thing Tyson is talking about? Um, so I have not done backcountry skiing. It's something that I've been wanting to try. Um, I, yeah, I'm an alpine skier and, and I do cross country ski as well, but, um, yeah, this is, this is all new stuff to me, new terrain. So it's super interesting. So cool. Okay. So you lost your vision. Uh, you have not always been visually impaired Tyson. So tell us a bit about your career before you lost your vision. Prior to my vision loss, um, I was a ski guide and an avalanche professional. And so what that looks like, um, is if you want to go backcountry skiing and you don't have any experience, you don't have the knowledge to determine, you know, what is safe to ski and what isn't safe to ski and, and how to assess and manage the different hazards that the mountain presents, um, you're likely going to hire a, uh, a guide. And this guide will have um, varying degrees of experience um, traveling in the mountains and performing mountain rescue um, and in will also be in addition to that an avalanche professional. So someone that has a professional background um, in assessing and managing um, avalanche is a, obviously a significant hazard in the mountains in the winter. Um, and then someone like myself would take you on a backcountry skiing trip. So for myself, most of the work that I did was in the mechanized industry. Um, I've worked at a couple of different cat skiing operations and for cat skiing, uh, we use the same machines that are used as groomers on the resort, but instead mm -hmm. of a winch and a tiller on the back, they have a box with a bunch of seats for people. And we drive around the mountains in this big machine and um, we have a, a pre-built road network. And this allows us to once again, access terrain that wouldn't be accessible, um, you know, cause there's no chairlifts essentially without this machine. Um, and so this is a way that we can take people skiing in the backcountry that don't have the specialized equipment that I just described to you. Um, you know, you can, we're getting up the mountain in this big machine and then you, you ski down with your regular uh, downhill oh. skis. And then also I've worked for several heli skiing companies and same concept there, but instead of a, you know, a, a modified snow grooming machine taking up the mountain, it's a helicopter and that's how we access the backcountry terrain. And once again, it's a way for us to take um, you know, anyone who's a competent skier that wants that backcountry skiing experience that maybe doesn't have, um, you know, the, the specialized equipment I mentioned, this is a way for us to take them into the backcountry and give them that experience. And then also when we use a helicopter or a snowcat, we can do substantially more skiing in a day than you would mm -hmm. if you were having to do the hike uphill yourself. You get picked up at the bottom of every run then and brought back to the top. Yep. That's exactly like, it. Yeah. Okay. So nice. yeah, whether it's the snowcat or the helicopter drops you off to the top, picks you up at the bottom and, uh, yeah, we huh. just ski beautiful untracked powder all day. Nobody around but us. <laughs> and I guess nice. that's, that's the beauty, right? Is the, the fresh powder that nobody's skied in. That's like what would attract people to do this over just a regular ski run. 
That's right. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, I imagine there must be like some element of like the whole being in a new environment, kind of exploring the the area and the whole adventure side of things as well with all of that. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You see, you know, just incredible scenery. And, you know, as I mentioned, it's just our groups out in the mountains. So you're definitely seeing, um, you know, seeing mountainous terrain that not everybody gets to enjoy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very, um, adventurous experience. Yeah. I'm curious to know, like, what are the different, because I know like with avalanche, like, I don't know much at all, but I know there's different like types of snow and I'm interested to know, like, like how does that, all that work? Like <laughs> in terms of avalanche, like safety. Um, yeah, it's a very uh, complex and, and in-depth subject, um, but basically the, the snowpack is a product of, of the weather, if that makes sense, right? It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, the changes in temperature, um, the types of precipitation that fall from the sky, the changes in wind, all these different factors and, and some others I haven't mentioned all combine together to um, yeah, create either positive or negative changes in the snowpack. And so um part of one of one of the things that we do when um assessing a slope uh to determine you know what risk it presents to our guests in terms of avalanches is to look at the different types of snow and the way they're layered within the snowpack certain snow crystals bond together quite nicely and create a good stable snowpack um and others do not and so that is one of the things that we do as avalanche professionals is look through all these different layers and um yeah so when did you realize you were losing your vision and how did that impact your job? Um, so it started in late fall of 2018 and it started with my right eye. And at first it was just kind of a general blurriness. Um, and I had had glasses when I was a kid and my right eye was the bad eye and um, my vision had gotten much better. And it was at the point where it was, you know, 2020 and that, you know, it was, there was a very brief period when I was a kid when I, you know, needed glasses. So anyway, when my vision started to get blurry in my right eye, I thought, oh, well, maybe once again, I'm going to have to look at going to an optometrist and, and getting a pair of glasses, something like that. It's a little bit blurry. And then over the course of about two weeks, it went from, yeah, being a bit blurry and kind of annoying to this substantial um, blind spot that took up uh, almost entirely all the vision of my right eye. I had just a a very, very small amount of peripheral vision left. So at that point, um, I realized that, yeah, this is perhaps not a situation where I need to see an optometrist. I need to see a doctor. And I was also having a little bit of pain behind my right eye. So I thought this is a medical problem. So I saw a doctor and was initially um, misdiagnosed as having optic neuritis and, or having MS, sorry, and optic neuritis being how it was, how it was presenting Yikes. and uh, was treated for that, uh, which of course the treatment didn't work because as we now know, I, I don't have MS, I, I don't have optic neuritis. Um, and so my most of my work begins in December. And so very quickly, I had to, you know, begin going to work. And there was this sort of four week period where I was kind of having some adjustment issues, my depth perception was a bit off. Um, and, you know, I was kind of feeling a bit sort of unstable or a bit dizzy at times. But over the course of four weeks, that went away. And then, um, you know, my brain just seemed to adjust to only, you know, utilizing my left eye. Um, and everything was basically fine. I, I worked the rest of the winter uh, working for a heli skiing company in BC and everything went pretty well. Um, 
didn't really impact my work all that much until um, about eight months later in early summer, the same thing started to happen to my left eye. The, uh, the progression was a bit slower. It took place over about four weeks instead of two, but the end result was roughly the same, a substantial blind spot um, in the center. And then I've got, as I mentioned, a little bit more peripheral vision left in my left eye. But, um, but yeah, at that point, it's, it's a pretty radical change. Like I said, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I need to use a screen reader and I have, you know, now that I'm quite used to just utilizing, utilizing that peripheral vision, as I mentioned, I can walk around without bumping into things, but that certainly wasn't the case for the first couple of months. It was a very, you know, awkward sort of thing to just even get around my house. And then um, the idea of being a ski guide is, is just simply not possible. Unfortunately, for someone with that level of vision, you just can't fly around in a helicopter and identify safe skiing terrain when you, yeah. you know, when you can't see what's, you know, when you can't see what's in front of you. So anyway, that was a huge change. I had to give up that job and had to start looking for other things. And in the meantime, um, I continued to ski in the backcountry with friends, continued ski touring, which is the mode of backcountry skiing that I first described with the special material on the bottom of your skis. And um, yeah, and I was having an awesome time. And and some of the days I had in the backcountry were really the, the, the happiest and best days for me since losing my vision. And um, I did look into adaptive sports programs that were offering this and I, I couldn't come up with any. And I, I really felt like this was something that um, other blind people would really enjoy. And so that's kind of how I transitioned from, you know, doing, you know, guiding in the backcountry as a, as a means of making a living to, you know, trying to utilize that skill set in order to provide that opportunity for other blind and visually impaired skiers. So cool. That's super interesting. So when about oh, did you. you start? Did you start um, the Braille Mountain Initiative? Um, in uh, late May of 2020. Oh, wow. Okay. So like during COVID. Yeah, during COVID. So that definitely presented quite a few challenges. Um, our first uh, big trip, which was meant to be a, a week long with a group of blind skiers and was going to involve a bunch of avalanche education and um really that's the that's the the product i wanted to deliver unfortunately we had to cancel that trip um because of covid but we were able to run two two smaller trips um you know we kind of had to change our what we were what we were trying to do to fit within the restraints of covid and so we did get a couple of blind people skiing out last winter um but now this winter we've got um two of the week long trips that i've that's what we've really set out to do and we've got two of those planned for this winter and there are uh, four other blind people joining me on each of those. Oh, are you already fully booked? Yeah, <laughs> and we do have a bit of a wait list developing. Okay, well, that's cool. That's good for you. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know like, where you're doing these trips. So the first trip is going to a place called Purcell Mountain Lodge, and that's just west of Golden, B.C., and so if the second trip will be a similar concept where um, we'll all meet at the Golden Airport in the morning and a helicopter will fly us out to the lodge. The lodge is a very remote setting, totally off the grid, um, no road access whatsoever. There's no way to get there in the winter except for a helicopter. And then we stay there for a week um, and every morning we'll get up and we'll go skiing, um, as I described, putting that special material in the bottom of our skins or bottom of our skis, sorry, and basically 
hiking up the mountain to ski whatever it is we feel like skiing that day and whatever it is the uh the mountains will allow us to ski so to speak whatever ends up being the safe decision for the day and uh throughout that week we'll also incorporate some uh companion rescue skills and uh, uh avalanche skills training so you talk about um companion rescue and that's a, a very important part of this i know um so can you explain a little bit about what that means yeah you bet um, so everybody that's skiing in the backcountry is wearing what's called an avalanche transceiver, and it's a little radio transmitter um, that sends out a signal once per second. Now, if someone were to be involved in an avalanche or perhaps some other kind of incident like a tree well or perhaps even just getting lost, we can then use that little radio transmitter to find them. Um, these transmitters also have the ability to switch to a search function where they can pick up that signal that the others are transmitting. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a huge component in companion rescue is teaching somebody how to find a buried person under the snow using that avalanche transceiver. And then once you've used that to narrow down the signal to quite a small area, you use what's called a probe. Um, and this is a device that's really similar to a tent pole. Um, it's made of a bunch of segments with a cable that holds them together. And this locks together into one long pole. You poke this through the snow surface until you feel your buried friend under the snow. And that gives you an indication as to where you have to start digging. And that's the, the, the basics of the process. So we will teach people how to use these tools as a blind or visually impaired person. So a sighted person would use that, uh, that avalanche transceiver just by looking at the screen and it'll have a distance in meters and it'll have some arrows on it. It'll direct them right to the person they're searching for. Um, for us, we use avalanche transceivers that have a built-in analog mode, which um, it's interesting, the manufacturer certainly didn't build them that way for blind people. They built them that way as a problem-solving tool for professionals, but what they'll do is they'll turn that radio frequency into just an audible tone. And as it gets louder, you reach a maximum volume, you dial down into the lowest range, and then you begin searching once again for where you find the volume to be the loudest. And you dial it down oh, and you go again. And you do this process several times until you're in the lowest range and you find the loudest tone that it can produce in that range. And that's the strongest uh, source of the signal. Wow. That's super interesting. I had no idea. How long can somebody live if they're buried under the snow? Like, do you, this seems very <laughs> <Not>. stressful. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's incredibly stressful. And the answer is not very long. Right. Um, there have been scenarios where someone has, has lived, you know, beyond 45 minutes. But generally, you're talking about, well, how long could you hold your breath? Oh, and add yeah. a couple of minutes to that because there is air within um, the snow is not packed so tightly that it's water, if that makes sense. So there is yeah. going to be small amounts of air within the snow, but you're going to use that quite quickly. So the answer is not that long. And so that's why this is a skill that we need to teach people. They need to be proficient at it. But really what's more important is the things that take place prior to that. It's knowing how to make, um, assessments, uh, of the weather and the snowpack and how those things, um, interact with each other, um, and how, you know, the, the snow lays over the topography so that you can make good decisions um, and not end up in that situation in the first place. Learning how to determine what is safe to ski and what is not safe to ski. So that's a huge component of what we're going to do over the course of that week is teach them um, the basics of those skills so that ideally they can be involved in the sport um, after their week with us without requiring Braille Mountain Initiative. It's a teach a man to fish versus just giving them the fish type of scenario, provide them with the skills they need to continue to be involved in the sport 
you know, within their local community. Uh, ski touring is a very rapidly growing sport. Lots of people are getting into backcountry skiing. And so if we can demonstrate that they can be uh, an integral part of the decision-making process in the field and they can safely and effectively um, perform companion rescue, then hopefully they'll be invited to, you know, go out backcountry skiing with people in their local area. Yeah. Well, that's brilliant. People bringing their own guides or do you provide guides? Um, so a little bit of both, depending on the situation. Uh, we do have some really great volunteers, um, people that I have been skiing with since my vision loss that have done really good in the role of guiding me, but they are also um, uh, very knowledgeable in, in terms of all the things I just described, as well as in some cases, they are uh, ski guides themselves and avalanche professionals. Um, so it really depends on a, a case by case basis. Um, if people would like to use one of the volunteers that we have, um, that's a really great option. Um, however, some of our volunteers actually, well, for the most part, all of our volunteers don't have any experience guiding somebody with no vision. Right. Um, and that's obviously a bit of a different skill set. I mean, if you, even that little bit of remaining, remaining peripheral vision makes a big difference in how you can be guided if you can see some visual cues. So for example, one of our guests that's coming on our first trip this winter is 100% blind and he's been that way since birth. And so he is going to bring his own guide and the guide that he's bringing is someone that guides him very regularly in a resort setting, but also does some backcountry skiing on their own time. So they do have uh, some experience in the backcountry, but you know, very importantly, they have quite a bit of experience guiding somebody with no vision mm -hmm. um, on skis in a resort setting. And then we'll work to teach the both of them, you know, the skills they need to work together to, to be a team in the mountains. So um, with the guides that you provide, uh, if people choose to go that route, um, how do you like what, how do you go about um, teaching them to, to guide people with visual impairments? Um they they guide me and we learn as we go as how so far. <laughs> and if you don't crash um, and burn they they pass <laughs> yeah exactly for the most part um they're yeah they're people that have had an interest in going into the mountains with myself and um i'm pretty happy to to be the guinea pig so to speak and we kind of learn the learn the systems together and then um most of these people are, are friends of mine from before i lost my vision that have been you know decided they really like being a part of this would like to help other people um, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's people that have gone skiing with myself and have decided it's something that they're into. And it's something that I've decided they're good at. I, I'm just thinking of, um, one time, the first time I went cross country skiing with my husband when we were dating and I <laughs> turned off the trail somehow, I, I I'm going to say he said, he said left and it was right or something. But anyways, I ended up in a sink, like in a tree hole, um, like, I couldn't get out and I wanted to, you know, prove my independence. So here I am like trying to just dig my own way out. And the more you dig in the powder, the more you sink. <laughs> so, it's, totally, it's a very real hazard. Yes. Eventually mm -hmm. he had to drag me out of there, but that was just cross country skiing where you've got tracks to follow and everything. So I can imagine like your guides need to be pretty accurate and do you have like sort of a, a word that they say to make you stop if you're like approaching something dangerous or I don't know, sit on your bum? Um, like, 
Yeah, I mean, we we don't we don't use any you know any special code words or anything like that. We just speak in speak in normal uh, normal language. And yeah, so if I'm about to ski into something, they're gonna start yelling, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Stop, stop!" Yeah, and uh, yeah, it works out. Uh, it works. Cool. Um, you know, one of the things that's really great about what we're doing when people are being when blind people are being guided um, in a resort setting, you know, they're often using Bluetooth headsets. And some resorts mm-hmm. now have a policy: you need to have two guides, one in front, one behind. It becomes this really micromanaged uh, process and that's something that's very different about what we're doing when it's just us out in the mountains and you know we can get on top of these beautiful pristine untracked uh, slopes with really you know consistent terrain consistent powder um, we can create a scenario where that that micromanagement just disappears that's that's something that is really important to me and that's something that I want to um, share with our our participants is the opportunity to even though you're a blind person be able to say hey you know, you've got nothing to hit for 500 meters and, you know, you can just do your own thing, right? Ski as mm. fast as you want, turn wherever you want. You don't need someone speaking to you in your ear constantly through a, through an earpiece saying, oh, okay, you know, turn right, turn left, blah, blah, That's blah. Like, cool. Yeah. Um, mm. And so we don't have those, feel free. those Bluetooth. Yeah, exactly. We don't use those Bluetooth earpieces. It's just us out there. Um, and with no other noise of other skiers and lifts and all that stuff, you know, it is as simple as a friend of mine being, you know, a ways down the slope. And like, you know, sometimes just, you know, making a, making a noise yelling, okay, you're good. And then, you know, I can start skiing down and we'll, we'll meet up at the bottom. And I don't, there are still scenarios where I require that micromanagement, but for me, the goal is definitely to get into a, a, a scenario where I can ski independently and I don't need that micromanagement. And that's one of the things that we really want to provide to our participants. Hmm. Yeah. I, the last time I went downhill skiing, I remember that sort of, it seemed like just a big slope to me. And why did I have to turn left here and right there and watch out for that? Like, obviously there's, I don't know, I can't see the obstacles, but people or signs or something that was making me have to go a certain way, which it just felt like this big open space and why I didn't really understand, you know? Well, and I can totally relate like the, I've done lots of, um, guided downhill skiing with a beeper and I've also used the Bluetooth headset. And, um, but my, my guide and I, um, we got, you know, really used to each other and he just really used to each other's style and, and communication and stuff. And, uh, sometimes if the, um, there would be days, these brilliant days where there'd be like, we'd go midweek and there'd be very few people out on the slopes, um, and we'd choose a slope and that was nice and wide open, no trees, no, nothing to run into. And he'd just turn off the beeper or the headset and be like, all right, let her rip. And, uh, you know, whatever happens, happens. Like I'll obviously yell at you if, if you're going to really hit something, but, uh, just go. And that was some of the most exhilarating experiences I've ever had. So That's I bet cool. that sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah. So participants must be very strong skiers, like with, with good physical fitness. Um, are there, are there tryouts or how do people know if they're fit enough or strong enough skiers to do this sport? Um, we've thought about the idea of a tryout and I think it would be very logistically challenging and very stressful. The participants that are coming on our program are from 
Um, they're from all over. Like on our second trip, the one that's taking place in April, we have um, a blind woman coming from as far away as Italy, and we have an American coming on the first one. So wow. we decided not to do the tryout thing. So I think it would be unfairly stressful. And like I said, logistically quite challenging. So really, what we do is uh, we set up a phone interview, and I just kind of, you know, I just, you know, we we have a conversation about, you know, where do you like to ski and you know, I'm familiar with a lot of the resorts in, in Western Canada and, you know, we can have a pretty good conversation and kind of gauge, you know, what time, what kind of terrain they're skiing and, you know, really at with their, where they're at with their skiing level. Um, and then kind of, you know, just talk about how they, how they live their life. Um, you know, what do they do for fun sort of thing? You know, if someone says, Oh, I, you know, I, you know, I, I play music and that's it. You know what I mean? They're not a very active person. Well, it's pretty easy to explain the, you know, the, the very strenuous activity that we're suggesting. And then often, you know, often it becomes a case where they recognize that maybe they're not in a position yet to do something like this. And maybe they need to make some lifestyle changes before joining us. And so, um, yeah, basically we just have a chat and we discuss, you know, what, what the trip will look like and what we attend on doing and, and get a feel for where they're at in their life. And, you know, see if those things are going to line up. And uh, so far it's worked well. I think, I mean, we've only had a couple of people out skiing with us, but they were really great fits for the program. And we've got more people coming this year. And um, I, I think the system's going to work. The people that we've talked to seem um, like the right people for the program. And like I said, the That's people awesome. that generally are not quite there yet um, often self-identify as being, you know, perhaps not quite ready for it this season, maybe next year sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So is there like, you have to be able to ski uh, a blue run or a black run, or you have to be able to cross country for so many kilometers? Like, do you have any kind of criteria? Nothing like nothing uh, super concrete, but yeah, like we, we, you know, talk about being able to ski blue runs quite confidently and being able to ski black or double black runs, you know, with, with assistance, um, obviously, and being able to, you know, simply get to the bottom, often a lot of double black terrain at resorts in BC has got, you know, lots of moguls and rocks and trees and is generally, um, you know, in my mind, not something that I find super enjoyable as a blind skier, because you lose that, you lose that independence when you're having to be micromanaged around all those terrain features. But being able to get through that type of terrain is something that you have to be able to do in order to come on our program. Our goal is to put you in those, you know, wide open, untracked slopes where you can just, you know, just rip. But in order to get in and out of some of that terrain, often there can be, you know, uh, more technical terrain with lots of um, natural hazards. And so that's kind of what I describe to people is you need to be very, very confident in the open terrain and you need to be um, at least capable of getting through the more challenging terrain with the uh, abundance of hazards. And then as far as the physical fitness level, yeah, we just kind of have a general conversation. You know, if you're someone that does a lot of cross-country skiing, you know, that's a very um, cardio-intense sport. And if you're a very strong cross-country skier, then the combination of those skills with being a good downhill skier, you're going to be a great fit for this program. Or, for example, one of our participants coming up um, is a competitive swimmer. And once again, that's a very intense sport. And you have to be very fit to, to swim competitively. So, you know, I felt very confident that their physical fitness level is in line with, with what we're trying to do. What do you think, Keisha? Are you, would you qualify? I feel like you um, <laughs> I would definitely, I, I would love it. Um, I, I think my cardio is probably hopefully up to snuff. Um, I don't think I could ski a double black at this point in time in my life, but definitely I can ski blacks and I definitely would love to build up to this. Mm, that's cool. Awesome. Yeah, I 
I tried to blue. Have you. I tried. I tried a blue run once, and it didn't go well, and so I stick to the green. <laughs> so I think this is beyond me. I like the cross country skiing aspect, but even in cross country skiing, the downhills are are my nemesis. So, <laughs> right. uh, yeah, and that's supposed to be the fun part. But, um, okay. So I'm I'm just curious. Can you, without vision, detect the avalanche conditions? Is there a way by field to do some of the things you were describing earlier? Um, well, for our participants, we're going to teach them to use um, the resources that are available on Avalanche Canada's website. So uh, Avalanche Canada produces a public avalanche forecast um, for most of BC and Alberta, or at least for all the areas that are popular for backcountry skiing. So. Um, a lot of what we're going to do on this won't be necessarily um, focused on them making the snowpack assessments, but them using the information that's been provided and then applying that um, to the terrain that they find themselves in. Mm -hmm. um, I, there is there is definitely some assessments that, uh, and, and sorry, I should mention, this is the case for um, these types of education programs that are being provided to the cited as well. Um, Snow science is a very complex subject that, you know, really can't be taught in a couple of days. It, it takes years and years. And so when there's professionals providing that data, um, the way forward for a lot of recreationalists is to, to take that data and then learn how to apply it over the terrain that they find themselves in. Um, so that's the goal. The, the idea is we're going to try and modify the curriculum as little as possible and give them the education um, as similar as possible to what a sighted person would receive. And there will be some snowpack analysis within that, but a lot of it will be learning how to um, use the resources available from Avalanche Canada and then put that into practice in their, uh, their outings in the mountains. And there's a few different um, checklists and cheat sheets and, and stuff like that that help you put all the pieces together. And once again, those are a normal part of um, this avalanche education that would be provided to anyone else in the public. And we're just modifying its presentation. Makes sense that you're like, this is the sort of thing that you go with a guide unless you are one, right? Like whether you're blind or not, you're going to go with somebody who knows how to do all of this. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and these, these recreational courses are meant to, to teach, um, the general public, um, enough to be able to safely and confidently do this on their own. And so that is that is part of what we're trying to do is create a scenario where we can pass down enough knowledge, enough experience throughout the course of this week that they can get involved with um, you know, others in their area and and hopefully meet experienced people in their area and not necessarily have to hire a guide or or use our services. And um because yeah, that's uh yeah, having to hire a guide all the time can be a bit of a barrier. It's very expensive. And so that's why we're teaching these people the skills. So what is the cost to attend one of your, your trips? We are charging our participants $1,000 for the week. And that includes the helicopter transfer, transportation from the Calgary airport out to where we need the helicopter. And then that's also food and accommodation for the week and the guiding wow. services. That's amazing. Good that's deal. Really good. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. We've put in um, a really uh, substantial amount of work uh, fundraising over the last year and a half to really uh, subsidize that. The cost per person is certainly far greater than that, but 
we put in the work fundraising to bring that down because one of the barriers to access is definitely the cost of it. Um, the equipment is, we provide the equipment as well. I should mention that the equipment is very expensive. Uh, the courses are expensive and essentially not available to the blind until this, you know, this sort of education we've created. So yeah, the cost is a barrier. Um, the lack of education is a barrier. Um, and then I think there's a bit of uh, public perception that can be a barrier as well. You know, when I've explained that I'm taking blind people back into skiing, there have definitely been some people that have said, you know, I don't think that's a, a safe or reasonable thing to do. And they shouldn't be doing that, which, of course, I strongly disagree with because I'm doing it all the time. <laughs> um, and so the idea is, you know, we kind of looked at what are what could reasonably be preventing blind people from getting into this sport because I'm having a great time doing it. I think others will, too. So why aren't there more blind people in the backcountry? And those are kind of the big three things that I've identified is the cost, um, public perception, and um, the lack of education. And so, you know, we're trying to, um, you know, create a scenario where we can tackle all those barriers at once. Yeah, that's great. So what, what kind of things do you, what kind of hopes for the future do you have for Braille Mountain Initiative? Um, well, as I mentioned at the start, I, you know, I tell people that our focus is to um, get blind athletes involved in backcountry mountain sports. And the reason I say that instead of backcountry skiing is, you know, skiing is, is a passion of mine. And it's, it's you know, I, I think for Braille Mountain Initiative, it's the starting point. Um, I think there are other aspects of backcountry mountain sports where, you know, those same barriers have probably prevented access. So, um one of the trips that we did um, last uh, last spring was we brought a couple of blind skiers out. We did one day of uh, summer glacier skiing, which was a lot of fun. And then the next day uh, we did some rock climbing. Oh, and cool. so in the future, I'd like to kind of look at, and I, now there are some, some good climbing programs actually that already exist for, for the blind. So that's not an area where there's a huge deficit, but we could perhaps expand upon that. Mm. Um, you know, and maybe offer like multi-day climbing camps and really look at what has been provided, much like there are many, um, there are many programs for a blind person to learn how to ski. Almost every resort has got an adaptive sports program and will teach a blind person how to ski. And then so we're providing sort of the next level. And so mm -hmm. I could see us maybe looking at doing something like that for climbing where there are existing programs. We'll look at where they end and then maybe that's where we start. And uh, likewise with hiking and mountaineering, uh, same things. I think those same barriers come into play. And so we can start looking at moving into some summer programs where uh, this summer we're now, we we don't have any, uh, you know, what I would say concrete plans, um, but we've kind of just started looking into some of the details um, in, in order to provide a multi-day hiking trip. So what we're looking at right now is an east to west uh, traverse across the Purcell range four nights, oh, wow. five days. Cool. So stuff like that. So same sort of thing. We're, we're going to look at what, what exists um, in the realm of backcountry mountain sports and um, you know, what's the next level. And that's kind of where we'll try and take this. That's so awesome. That that's like very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. I think I, so too. Yeah. I think a lot yeah. of people are going to enjoy it. And I, I have, people have already reached out and expressed an interest in those activities, you know, when we've said, Oh, we're taking blind people back at your skiing, people have emailed and said, well, what about this? What about that? And I said, mm -hmm. well, I mean, not, not today, but maybe next year or the year after it's something that we're looking at. Well, trailblazing for the future. And I, as a person who is like very interested in, in outdoor adventure sports and taking it up a notch in, um, in the future, like I, I sometimes go out and I just, I just like, I'll go out with friends who I trust and I'm just like, let's just try it. Let's just do it. 
and problem solve our way through and, um, you know, see what happens, obviously safely, um, in a reasonable way. But there are times where I'm like, you know, it'd be nice to be able to like pick the brain of somebody who has some experience with this kind of stuff and that sort of thing. So, or like go on an experience with somebody who, who has a similar, you know, condition or situation to me who I could, who has some tips and tricks that are are great. So this is, this is totally amazing. <laughs> That's a good question. Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad you think do, you, so. do you provide sort of that? Like if somebody does want to do some adventure kind of backcountry stuff in their own, wherever they live in the world and they're visually impaired, like, is that part of Braille Mountain Initiative? Can people contact you to kind of ask your question, their questions of like, how would somebody maybe guide me in this situation? Or how would I, I don't know, is that part of what you offer? Um, yeah, you bet. There has been times where, yeah, someone doesn't need sort of the, the full scope of what we're providing on our trips, but has some simple questions and whatnot. Um, yeah, I'm more than happy to answer. It's it's something, something easy to do. If someone's got a question, I have the answer. I'm happy to provide it. And there have been a few people that have reached out and said, hey, you know, I'm, you know, your, your back to your scheme program sounds incredible. It's not something I'd really like to do, but I don't know how to ski. Like, how do I even get get to mm. that point? You know what I mean? And then I'll send them details on an adaptive program in their area or, you know, whatever advice I can provide. So yeah, if there's a scenario where, you know, the help that a person needs is as simple as answering an email, then yeah, we're more than happy to do that. Mm. What is glacier skiing? Um, um, skiing on a glacier. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess uh, I, so. I'm, uh, I don't even really know what a glacier looks. You know, is it like an ice, like it, like an ice rink? Like I don't even know what a glacier yeah, it's, is. It's an ice really. formation. So what it is is it's um, it's ice that doesn't melt through the summer, and this ice is formed through um, years and years and years of snow settling and compressing on itself until it compresses um, all the way into ice, essentially. Um, and so these these glaciers are there's they're all over. Um, Alberta and British Columbia and, and the Yukon and stuff like that. And um, yeah, it's, it's ice left over from, from years and years and years of uh, compressing snow. And uh, so anyway, it's really skating. the only, if you wanted to, yeah, if you, yeah, they're covered in snow. Um, okay. If you wanted to ski in like, you know, May or June, that's mm. likely the only place where you're going to be able to do so. Um, getting that late in the year or, you know, we took a trip, uh, we took, brought a couple of people, blind people out in, uh, mid June. And so if you wanted to ski in mid June, that's going to be your only option. Right. Cool. So it's like, hot. is it hot up? Well, I guess it's still cold. <laughs> the ice hasn't um, melted. No, no, it was like, it warm? you know, we're, we're at an elevation of, of under 10,000 feet, uh, on this glacier. And so, yeah, in June, it was still probably, uh, 15 degrees above. So yeah, it was, mm -hmm. it's quite warm. It's uh, it's a very different experience. The snow surface is very different. Um, it's a very different experience than skiing in winter. Okay. So if people want to get in touch with you or get more information, where can they find you? Um, they can visit our website, which is brailmountaininitiative.com, or they can email us at brailmountaininitiative at outlook.com, or they can find us on Facebook by just looking up Rail Mountain Initiative. And we're also on Instagram by the same name. Can, can I ask uh, how you came up with the name Braille Mountain Initiative? Like Braille Mountain, that's super cool. Um, there's a phrase that people will often use when skiing in the Alpine in a whiteout. 
they'll say, oh, we're, we're skiing by Braille. And I kind of <laughs> thought like, there's, there's some, I don't know, I thought, how can I incorporate that sort of concept? Because that's, you know, the people say that because you're skiing by feel. If you're, you know, mm-hmm. if you're in the Alpine and you're above the tree line and you get whited out, you have no point of reference. So you literally are just feeling your way down the mountain. And that's where the saying skiing by Braille came from. Um, And so I kind of thought, how can I sort of, you know, incorporate that sort of mindset into something that's um, sounds a little empowering, if that makes sense. And uh, absolutely. um, And no one had that name yet. (laughs) That's so cool. (laughs) Well, it's been a delight talking to you. and just hearing about all this. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tyson. This is really cool and, um, good luck. I hope I I can't wait to see where you take this. This is early days for you and this organization, but it sounds like you've got some really amazing stuff in mind. So good luck. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. This has been great. You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic request, please send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Please share our podcast with a friend, like, subscribe, and join us next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca and also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.